0: Jeremiah chapter 2, if you have a Bible, find that passage. We're going to work through it this morning. There is an outline in your bulletin. You can track along with the message. Some of you have inquired this morning about the speed with which we are moving through the book of Jeremiah. And you remember that I told you this is word for word, the longest book in the Bible. And you remember that I told you we were only going to spend 20 Sundays working through this book, and here we are on week three, and we are just inching through the first chapter, barely into the second chapter, and you're trying to make the math work, and you're concerned that I'm not gonna come out right in the end, I promise Next week, we're about to pick up the pace. We're going to skip some of Jeremiah, and I'm going to explain to you this morning why we're going to take one section and just consider one little part of it, and the speed is about to pick up. I promise you that. We'll start with something that is familiar to those of you who have been here the last two Sundays, and that is the word of the Lord. We've talked about that phrase. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and sent him to Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah, And I've made reference to Jeremiah 3, verse 6, that dates the whole episode to the reign of Josiah, the word of the Lord. It shows up as a phrase, that particular grouping of words, the word of the Lord, some 350 times in the Old Testament. Over 150 of them, I think 157 of them, are found in Jeremiah. Most of them found in this book this heavy emphasis that Jeremiah is not just speaking his words, his thoughts, his ideas, but he is speaking the very word of God. Most Bible scholars think that what we're about to read is Jeremiah's first ever sermon. I mentioned chapter 3, verse 6. It dates this sermon to the reign of Josiah. You know anything about Josiah? He was the, the boy king who grew up and led a great revival in the southern kingdom of Judah. He was the first king whose life overlapped with Jeremiah the prophet. He was a good king, and there was this great revival breaking out under his leadership, which is interesting because when we actually read this very first sermon from Jeremiah, which he preached in Jerusalem. During the reign of Josiah and this great revival, Jeremiah doesn't seem to think much of the revival that's taking place. He doesn't come alongside the people and say, hey, everything's great. We're moving in the right direction. This is positive. Keep going. He comes along in his very first sermon. He says, everything is a mess. Everything is absolutely a train wreck. And It's hard to square this first sermon with the revival that Josiah is leading How do you square those two things? Well, maybe this sermon was preached early on in the revival process, in the timeline. Maybe the the ball really hadn't got rolling yet in all of Josiah's reforms, and it was going to take a little bit of time to, to spread throughout Jerusalem and throughout Judah. Maybe, as happens with all revivals and all awakenings, Jeremiah looked around and he saw a lot of phony conversions. A lot of just people going through the religious motions, caught up in the hysteria, swept along with all the changes, and he knew that these people would be swept right back into idolatry when revival was no longer the program of the day. For whatever reason, I'm just making the initial statement that this first sermon that Jeremiah preached was not positive, encouraging, K-love material. Nothing positive and encouraging about it. It is all rebuke. It is all confronting the people for their sin. Now, Jeremiah 2, verse 1, 2, and 3 uses a couple of metaphors to describe the relationship between the Lord, Yahweh, and his people, Israel, immediately after the Lord brought his people out of slavery In Egypt. So now we're going all the way back in the timeline to the book of Exodus. And Jeremiah is talking about this initial relationship between Yahweh and the people when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Two metaphors one is the honeymoon of a marriage, the second is the first fruits of a harvest. And so on the honeymoon, he says, Look, I remember when I brought you out of slavery. And I brought you to be mine, to belong to me. Almost as if he's saying, I brought you out to be my wife, my bride. And initially, that relationship was marked by love. It was sort of like the honeymoon period of a marriage. And then he pivots and he says, Israel, during those early days, they were like the first fruits of a harvest. In an Old Testament Israel, the first fruits of the harvest had to be set aside. They had to be made holy Just for the Lord. And there were curses attached to anybody who would take what belonged to the Lord in the first fruits. And God says, Look, Israel was like the first fruits. I set them apart to be mine. And any of those nations that came against them, they were destroyed. The Egyptians were destroyed. The Canaanites were destroyed. These were my people set aside to belong to me like the first fruits, set aside to be mine. Like a spouse. This section that we're considering, chapter 2, verse 1 to 6, 30, focuses on the status of the quote marriage between the Lord and his people. And just to be very blunt, the status is not good. The people have been unfaithful. If you read into chapter 3, you'll read that the Lord says, The northern kingdom of Israel has been faithless, and I have sent her away with a decree of divorce. That's strong language for the God who brought these people out of slavery to belong to him, to be devoted to him. He says, I have sent them away. And he had. He sent them into exile at the hand of the Assyrians. They were gone. They were no longer in the land. Then he says in chapter 3 to Judah, the southern kingdom, you are guilty of the same unfaithfulness, and your day is coming. This section, one to 6.30, has three parts, and we're just looking at the very first part of this entire section, and then we're going to move on in the book of Jeremiah. But one to five, God laments the unfaithfulness of his people. It's a tragic just outpouring of God saying, what you have done in turning for me is a great, great Tragedy. He's hurt by it. He's heartbroken by it. Chapter three, verse six to four four, God calls them to repent. He calls them back into a relationship with himself, but he knows they will not listen to these calls for repentance. They will not listen to Jeremiah. So in the last section, 44 4 to 630, he promises terrible judgment will be poured out on his people. The honeymoon is over. One Bible scholar described it like this. I found this pretty helpful. Phil Riken. He says, time to wake up and smell the burnt toast. The honeymoon is over. And then he adds this personal note. My wife and I decided our honeymoon was over when the no-stick frying pan we bought when we first got married started to stick. Well, in Jeremiah 2, the frying pan is sticking like the floor of a movie theater. I took kids to the movie last night, three of them. The people right down from us had four of them. And when I left the movie theater, I had a very... And I thought, yeah, that's what we're talking about. The honeymoon is over. The stick is off the frying pan. What started with love and a unique relationship with the Lord has just devolved into faithlessness. That's the big idea of this passage. Israel was not faithful... The Lord who saved them. When I use Israel in this big idea, I'm not necessarily specifying the northern kingdom of Israel in contrast with the southern kingdom of Judah. I'm just talking about all of God's people, Israel. And you'll notice in Jeremiah 2, verse 4, Jeremiah sent to the house of Jacob and all the clans of the house of Of Israel. Yes, he's preaching in Jerusalem. Yes, that's the capital of Judah. But his message at this point in the book is for all of God's people, and the message is very simple You have been faithless, you have been unfaithful to the Lord. How does he describe it? I just want you to see three ways that Jeremiah describes the unfaithfulness of God's people. Number one, he says, Israel pursued worthlessness and they became worthless. They pursued worthlessness, and as a result, they became worthless. I told you, this is not positive, encouraging stuff. This is very direct, in-your-face conversation. Look at verse four and five. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me. In other words, God's saying, did I break my vows? Was I unfaithful to you? Did I fail to provide for you when I brought you out of Egypt? Did I fail to protect you when I brought you out? The obvious answer is no. The Lord did not fail in any of these things. They did not find anything wrong in the Lord, and yet they went far from him. Verse 5, they went after worthlessness and they became worthless. Those two words, worthlessness and worthless. They are the, at root, the Hebrew word, hebel, or hevel. You'll find that word in the book of Ecclesiastes over and over and over and over again, sometimes translated vanity, sometimes translated meaningless, sometimes translated futile, sometimes translated just complete empty. That's what they went after. They went after these vain things. Ecclesiastes says the picture of of this emptiness is the man running after the wind, trying to catch and capture the wind. What a meaningless, futile, empty task. There's a principle that Jeremiah is talking about. Not only did they go after worthlessness, he says they also became worthless. You see this principle at work in Psalm 115, also Psalm 135. Both of these passages say that those who make idols become like them. So do all who go after them. The biblical principle is you become like whatever you worship. If you worship something that is true and right and good and holy, increasingly you become like the thing that you worship. But if you chase after things that are worthless and empty and vain and meaningless... That's what you become. Jeremiah is talking to people who lived thousands of years ago and just across the board, yes, there was a revival sort of taking place, but across the board, he looks at his society and he says, you've gone after worthless things and the result is you're worthless. My question to you is, is it possible when you look around our culture and our society, I'm not talking about you who are here on Sunday morning church necessarily, I'm just talking about the United States of America. Is it possible that we've made the same mistake? That we've ended up being an empty, vain, meaningless, hebel culture? Think about the emptiness that you see all around us every day. Think about the emptiness you see when it comes to the value of human life, especially life in the womb. It's not valued, there's an emptiness there. Think about the vanity of American consumerism that says you buy more, you feel better, you spend more, you feel better, you get more, you feel better. We're like people chasing the wind with our credit cards. It's vanity, it's emptiness, it's meaningless. You never get there. Think about the emptiness of what we take in in terms of media, entertainment. That might be your favorite streaming service, that might be evening sitcoms, that might be reality TV, that might be social media. Just think about the vanity of it, the emptiness of it, and we just take it in all day long, day after day after day. Think about the emptiness in our culture when it comes to respect for authority. My goodness, if you've watched the news over the last 18 months, you have just seen an outpouring of complete disrespect and disregard for authority in the home, for authority in schools, for authority with our police officers. It's just emptied. It's vacuous. It's Hebel emptiness all around us why it's because maybe while we profess to be christian people maybe we actually pursued things that were worthless and as a result we are now marked by this worthlessness so here's the second thing jeremiah says he says israel did not seek the lord they didn't seek the lord look at verse six seven and eight It's bracketed by two questions that Israel did not ask. Verse 6, they did not say, where is the Lord? Verse 8, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Their lives were not marked by this question, where is the Lord that we might seek him and follow him and know him? They didn't care about him or where he was, they were not actively seeking him. And he gets very specific in verse 8. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? The priests were not seeking the Lord. What a tragedy. The priests of this chosen nation, the people called to represent Israel before the Lord, they were not seeking the Lord. Neither were those who handled the law, verse 8 the seminary graduates, the Bible scholars, the Sunday school teachers, they were not seeking the Lord. They were handling the word of God, but they were handling however they saw fit. They weren't seeking the Lord. He says, the shepherds transgressed against me. The shepherds or the rulers, the kings, the governors, the administrators, the people in government, they weren't seeking the Lord. Neither were the prophets. They just prophesied by Baal. And went after things that do not profit. Just across the board, the priests, the teachers, the rulers, the prophets, they were not seeking the Lord. Again, Jeremiah is writing to people who lived thousands of years ago. If Jeremiah were to be airdropped into our society and he spent a week looking around and visiting us in our day-to-day, would he come away saying, not us as Emmanuel, but us as a people, as Americans, would he say, now there's a people who are serious about seeking the Lord? Or might he come away saying, you know, those people don't ask, where is the Lord? They don't seem all that interested in seeking him. You understand that in the year 2021, if you speak English, and especially if you live in this country, you have greater access to the Word of God than any human beings who have ever lived on planet Earth up to this moment. You can buy it at any store. You can download it on your favorite app, your phone, your tablet, your computer, We have unfettered, unlimited translations at your disposal, Bible commentaries, books, resources. We have virtually unlimited access to the Word of God. And yet, you look at something like the Ligonier 2020 State of Theology Survey that just surveys Americans and Americans who attend church and ask them basic Bible questions, basic theological questions that you would assume people who have unlimited access to the word of God and people who were seeking the Lord would be able to answer these things, the answers are atrocious. They're just absolutely abysmal. How can it be that biblical access is at an all-time high and biblical illiteracy is also at an all-time high? How can those two things be true at the same time in the same place? Only because we're really not serious about seeking the Lord. That's what Jeremiah said about the people in his day. They chased after worthlessness, they became worthless. You are not serious about seeking the Lord. Number three, he says they exchanged the glory of God for what might be called no gods. Look at verse 10. He says, cross the coast of Cyprus, cross to the coast of Cyprus and see Send to Keter and examine with care if there has ever been such a thing. Some of your translations don't say Cyprus. They say Kittim. It's an older word for what we call Cyprus. And essentially, Jeremiah is saying you can go all the way to the west to Kittim or Cyprus. You can go all the way to the east to Keter, east to west, west to east. We would say go all the way to L.A., go all the way to New York. Go all the way from Florida all the way to Washington State. See if this has ever happened anywhere at any time. Has it ever happened, verse 11, that a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? He looks around at all the pagan nations and he says, they don't abandon their gods. They're not even real gods. And they cling to those gods. What did Israel do? Verse 11, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. He says, you should be appalled and shocked and utterly desolate. That word glory is the Hebrew word kavod. It is essentially the functional opposite of Hebel. What God's people did is they took the glory that was theirs and they traded it in for Hebel. Glory means something that's heavy, something that's weighty. Something that's substantive, it's solid, it's there, it's real, it's meaningful, it's valuable. It's the complete opposite of something that's vain and meaningless and futile. They had glory. They traded it in for Hebel. He says, has anything like this ever happened before? What a shocking thing. Let me just give you an an example of what this might look like today. Imagine you have a teenager. I have one. Imagine your teenager is about to get his or her driver's license. Mine Mm -hmm. is. And imagine that I went out and bought my teenager this. This is illustration, not prophecy, just to be clear. Illustration. Emmanuel gives me a raise. Emma turns 16, and I say, it's all yours. 2021. Brand new Corvette. Emma says, this is the greatest. I deserve this. I've earned this. This is exactly the car for me. She drives it to school for a few days. Everything's great. She comes home midweek with no car. But she's very excited. And I say, Emma, where's the car? Emma says, Dad, you're not going to believe this. I worked a deal at school today. I said, you worked a deal? She says, yeah, I made a trade I gave one of my friends the car, and they gave me this. (laughs) Dad, it's a limited edition Hot Wheels. They only made 100 of them. Do you know how valuable it is? Look at it. It's an exact replica. You look at that situation, you say, that would never happen. Who would trade in the real thing for a Hot Wheels version? Who would do it? Israel did it. They had Kavod, glory, the true God and they exchanged him for Hebel, vanity, emptiness, no gods. Jeremiah gives an example of this, an illustration of this in verse 13. He says, my people have committed two evils. Now, He could have just listed the evils. He could have said evil number one is apostasy. They've turned from me. Evil number two is idolatry. He could have just listed them out. Instead, he gives you a word picture. My people have committed two evils. Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This idea of living water and something that holds or doesn't hold water should mean something to people who live in the desert. Let's just imagine you have a piece of property outside of town, and out on that piece of property, you have a, a water source, maybe something like what's at it, Balmoré. It's not something that you have to fill up. It's something that fills itself up continually, right? It's fed by a natural spring, and you just have access to this water. You live in the desert, and you live in a massive oil basin. That water's really worth something, right? My wife does taxes for people who sell water, and she tells me, we really ought to get into the water business. We might be able to buy some of those Corvettes you put up on the screen. I mean, that's, that's a real deal. We need to be selling water. So you've got this land, and it's got a living source of water on it. And then you roll into church one day, and you sit down all proud and puffy with yourself, and you say, well, I made the biggest, best, baddest business deal you've ever heard of this week. We say, really? Really? Does it have to do with your water? You say, yes, it does. I traded in my water rights for one of these bad boys. Oh, it's nice. It's nice. It's got a metal cage around the water tote, and it's got you know space on the bottom. You can put a forklift. You can move it around wherever. You pick it up and take it with you. It does have a small crack in the bottom, so I'm going to need to put some duct tape on that but it's really nice water tote. You can just keep filling it up as often as you want to. It's going to leak a little bit, but you just keep filling it back up. We would look at you and say, you need to go to the Methodist church. That's ridiculous. Why would you do it? It's preposterous. Why? It's foolish. No one would do that. Somebody did it. They had glory cavode they had living water and they made an exchange they gave up the living water and in exchange they got a busted cracked broken leaky cistern not good for anything and they felt good about it they bragged about it they patted themselves on the back jeremiah says has such a thing ever happened well actually it has it has they exchange glory for no gods. Paul says we've done the same thing. Romans chapter 1. We exchanged the glory of the true God for images, idols, worthlessness, Abel. What is the result of this unfaithfulness? Two thoughts I want to set before you. One, initially the Lord brought charges against his faithless bride. We read that in verse 9. Essentially, this is a courtroom scene. God is suing his people. He's pressing charges against his people. He's serving them with papers. And everything on the front end of this passage, verse one to eight, is sort of preliminary arguments and presenting evidence. But in verse nine, God gets right to the point and he says, I still contend with you. That word contend is the legal term that's meaning I'm pressing charges against you. We have a a decision coming between the two of us. And he says, I'm, contending with you and with your children's children, I'll contend. One of our members was reading ahead. They were going to be gone this Sunday and they read this passage and they called me and they said, why why would God contend not just with the people but with their children and their children's children? And I think the shortest, most immediate answer is that God contending with these people was about to result in them being sent into exile, and they weren't going to be gone for five years or 10 years or 20 years. They were going to be gone for 70 years. This lawsuit between God and his unfaithful people was about to result in God's people getting sent into exile out of the promised land for generation after generation after generation. Some of them would never come back. And God is saying to his people, your unfaithfulness will have a consequence, not just for you, but for your kids and for your grandkids. He's contending against them. Thank God this is not the end of the book of Jeremiah. Thank God that we keep reading in Jeremiah. And when we get to chapter 31, which we will get there, God says through Jeremiah to his people, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to enter into a new relationship with you. It's, a, it's as if God is saying to his people, I'm going to start a new marriage with you. The old one, it did not work. It's gone. But There's going to be something new. And thank God the book of Jeremiah is not the last book in the Bible. Anytime you study and read in the Old Testament, you've got to keep in the back of your mind, there's more to the story than what I'm reading here. This is not how it all ended ultimately. And so, yes, initially God is bringing charges against his people, but ultimately, eventually, the Lord sent Jesus to reconcile his faithless bride to himself. He sent his only son that we would be reconciled to him, that the relationship, the marriage that we were unfaithful in would be repaired and restored. That happened at the cross, and Paul describes it in Colossians chapter 1. He says, you who were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. You're alienated. You were separated from God because he was contending against you in your sin, in your idolatry, in your apostasy. It wasn't just that you were doing bad things. It was that your mind, your heart were wicked. You chased worthlessness and you became worthless. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He's talking about Jesus dying on the cross. Why? That he might present you, the church, holy and blameless. And above reproach before him. Jesus died on the cross for our sin and our Hebel that we might be reconciled and brought back into a right relationship with God. When you start to think about the cross and you go back and you read Jeremiah 2, several things change, and I'm just gonna give you these quickly. Number one, Jesus calls us to pursue his kingdom. Left to ourselves, what do we pursue? worthlessness, and we become worthless, Jesus places a different call on our lives, and he says, look, don't pursue that stuff anymore. Matthew chapter 6, I want you to pursue the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't pursue worthlessness. Don't seek worthlessness anymore. Secondly, Jesus came to seek us and save us. Israel just never got serious about seeking the Lord. Verse 6 and verse 8, no one said, where is the Lord? No one wanted to seek him. That's us. The Bible says that in the Old Testament and in the New, that left to ourselves, none of us seek after God. The good news of the gospel is that he came to seek us. Luke 19.10, which we've talked about many times on Sunday mornings, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. We didn't seek him. He sought us. We don't save ourselves, he saves us. Thirdly, Jesus offers us living water, living water. We cashed it in for the broken cistern. God, in His mercy and His grace, sends His Son, and His Son offers us living water once again. Think about Jesus talking with the woman at the well in Samaria, John chapter 4. He said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This promise from Jesus is ultimately, will ultimately be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. And we read about it in Revelation 22. We read about the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Living water. Jesus can give it to you, He will trade you a broken, busted cistern and give you living water. Last, Jesus sanctifies the church which is his bride. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5. He says Jesus loves the church in a way that He makes her holy and he makes her pure and he sanctifies her. And again, the ultimate fulfillment of this will be in heaven. Revelation 19. Jeremiah is talking about a divorce. Revelation 19 talks about a marriage. And here's what John says in Revelation 19. He says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, the kavod. He deserves the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her. It was given to the bride to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Revelation ends with a wedding party. A celebration that the new covenant that was established at the cross has become an eternal reality. God with his people forever. And here's the beauty of it. When this wedding ceremony takes place, this final marriage of the lamb and the wedding and all the rest of it, you don't just get to look forward to a honeymoon that lasts about as long as Teflon on a nonstick pan. You get forever. Eternity living water in a restored, reconciled relationship with Almighty God. He takes all of your Hebel and He puts it away forever so that you can give Him glory. Let's pray.